0: Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Lamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Um, traditionally, we have a number of speakers in in August. We trim that down because the environment to um, two of, I, I want to say two of our worst, but I'll just say they're two of our favorite ones. And uh, um, one of those is Alicia, as you saw last week, of course. And uh, talk about a difference in size and everything else. We're going to be going with Abdu. Abdu is a good friend of our church. And as much as I want to riff on him, I'm not going to. Um, he is a person who was raised Muslim, who pursued truth and came to the conclusion of following Jesus Christ. He was someone who was a top lawyer in the state of Michigan and forwent that uh, career to embrace uh, facing often hostile crowds in universities and other settings, uh, speaking and defending the faith and speaking to that. He's been a senior vice president with RZIM, probably the top um, the top, I think, in the world, apologetics organization, one who teaches and speaks and defends the faith uh, from an intellectual base as well as a biblical face, and um, is often, as I said, facing hostile crowds. Hopefully, this morning that would not be the case. Um, he is not a small man, and so I'm going to adjust this and have you, if you would, please very warmly welcome our good friend, Abdu Marie.
1: Thank you very much, and good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be uh, at Rock Point. Um, <coughs> 2020, uh, everyone gets nervous when I cough, but I always cough when I start to speak. So it's, now It's I have to qualify it. I don't have anything. I'm good. Don't worry about it. Um, it's always good to be back at Rock Point because, you know, it's very, very predictable. I think this is like the 10th time, maybe even more than that, that I've been to Rock Point. Uh, overall, but we've been doing this regular thing on August for quite some time now, so it can always mark my calendars, um, that I know when the summer is coming to a close, when kids are going to school again soon, uh, and that August is approaching, because sometime, whether in the middle or the end of August, here I am uh, at Rock Point, and it's always a joy to make it sort of a family reunion, as it were. I've been here for so many times now, and um, in fact, one of my very first public events uh, in ministry when I was doing it very much on the side was on this very platform. So a lot of history at this church. Thanks, Randy, for uh, vouching for the ministry and, and, and helping us be a part of what you're doing. The reason why I, f- I think about this being at Rock Point in August is because it's one of the only things in 2020 that's been predictable. Um, many an event has been either canceled or transformed into a digital event. And so I've done mostly digital events since March uh, although, refreshingly, I've been doing more and more live events with actual people looking at me in the actual eye as opposed to the little green dot on my computer uh, in a Zoom meeting. And um, I, will, I can assure you, the little green dot on my computer uh, has now received Christ as its Savior. Um, <laughs> but you know, let me just say this uh, 2020 is one of these weird phenomena. You know, remember what everyone said in January. Every pastor, every captain of industry, every leader said the same thing in January. 2020 was gonna be our year of vision. You know, sort of camping on this 2020 vision idea. But then the Australian wildfires happen. Kobe Bryant dies. Um, there is uh, the social unrest, COVID-19, lockdowns and now protests and fires, both wild and man-made all over the place. And we think to ourselves is that 2020 was supposed to be the year of vision? How clouded have we become? How much has our vision been completely obscured by all the things we're seeing? Can I challenge that and say that perhaps we're seeing more clearly than we've ever seen before? Maybe because of all the things we're seeing, we're seeing the importance of actually sitting down at a dinner table because we're forced to. Maybe we're getting tired of our devices and the screens are just becoming tiresome and we're getting drained from the various meetings and the online this and the online that and we, we, we so much want to reach out to touch an actual person and actually engage in a hug where a handshake is considered a gift. A gift. And we're seeing things socially and culturally that maybe we've turned a blind eye to towards a, for a long time and maybe we're seeing them for the first time. You know, it reminds me of that statement C.S. Lewis made about suffering when he says that God whispers to us in our pleasure and he speaks to us in our conscience but it is pain through which he shouts to us. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And maybe we're seeing and hearing things for the first time uh, because of what's going on, not despite what's going on. Um, God is moving. But what I want to speak to you about this morning is a little more of a challenging topic because what we're seeing now is a new phenomenon called the cancel culture. Now, some of you in the room, judging by the numbers of hairs on your head that are less than dark... you probably don't know what I'm talking about in terms of the label of cancel culture, but you may have experienced it or may have seen the phenomenon. And those of you who are young know exactly what I'm talking about. The cancel culture is what we find ourselves in now. It's... The fact that we used to engage in debate, in spirited debate, on issues, even if they were unpopular, where if you presented an opinion that was counter to what the culture had to say about it, we would entertain it. We might not agree with it, but we would say, what is your evidence, what is your argument, what do you have to say? You'd go on talk shows, you'd be able to express yourself at parties. Whatever it is, you could do it, and people might not agree, but no one would label you some kind of a horrible name, and you could have the conversation. That's not what's going on anymore. Now, if you happen to say something that runs afoul of whatever the culture has accepted on that issue, whether it's race, gender, sexuality, politics, religion, whatever it happens to be, if you happen to say something that someone, and usually the collective, finds offensive, they won't ask you, why do you think that? What are your arguments? They will basically cancel you. They will shame you into silence. The number of people who are famous, whether they're writers or actors or uh, athletes or whatever it might be, who say something that they believe to be true, they get canceled. We stop buying their jerseys. We stop going to their movies. We stop buying their books. We stop following them on social media. It's all this cancel you or shame you into oblivion and make sure to silence you because we cannot handle disagreement anymore. And that's what the cancel culture is all about. It's very public, but it's also very private. Individuals can go through this as well. It's not just people who are famous, it's individual people, everyday workaday people can experience this level of shaming, I know someone very close to me, I won't name who it is, who happened to say something that uh, spoke to a core conviction and they lost friends over it. In fact, it was so ugly that this person was experiencing tons of trauma because they happened to say something on their own social media feed that caused them to lose tons and tons of friends. People who were lifelong friends suddenly became their avowed enemies. It's happening can I offer something to you is that Jesus actually speaks into this. This is what seems like a new phenomenon like this is the way 2020 is going and it's been building now for some years but it's the way of the 21st century where we just engage in social media slander and silencing and all these things but can I suggest to you that this is not new at all this is actually ancient my people, I'm from Lebanon, I'm from the Middle East we invented this by the way we invented the whole shame thing thank you very much, you're welcome Um, we did this When you read the Bible, you see this happening. You see this happening in biblical times. And Jesus addresses it in a refreshing and amazing way that we ought to pay attention to. It's what Leslie Newbigin called Jesus' eternal contemporariness. Jesus is our eternal contemporary. He's this man who lived and breathed among us 2,000 years ago in a culture very different than today's culture. Yet, for some reason, he still has the ability, despite acting and moving and living in that culture 2,000 years ago, to speak to things that we're only now coming to grips with, it's as if he is transcendent. <laughs> he knows you, he knows your situation, he knows this culture, and he speaks into it. How is that possible? I want to describe sort of the Western phenomenon and the Eastern phenomenon. So if you you will, give me a minute or two to describe how it is that Jesus is our contemporary. So in the West, missiologists and sociologists, people who study culture, and anthropologists will study cultures based on how they react to authority and how they enforce morality. And so they break up the world into various kind of categories. The West, we're extremely individualistic. We have this individualistic idea started with the pioneering days of you know leaving persecution, a religious persecution, landing on Plymouth Rock, starting up this sort of like forge-your-own-destiny frontier kind of pioneering aspect of things and, you know, that had its bad sides too, obviously, but... Our culture is individualistic. We have a Bill of Rights that ensures rights of freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of worship in public, freedom to believe what you want to believe, freedom to disagree with who you disagree with, all kinds of things that are individual freedoms, and those are good because they foster innovation. They foster the ability for us to say, I want to follow the truth wherever it goes, no matter what the consequences, and no one has the right to stop me, not even the government. That's good. That's wonderful, but like everything, it has its shadow side. And its shadow side is that we often think of our individual rights, but we don't think of how what we do, say, believe, and all these things, how they affect the collective, we think individually. It's my life, Frank Sinatra would say, or I did it my way. And we often don't think of maybe your way has hurt some people. Yes, you have the right to do it, Have you thought about how it affects other people? We tended not to think that way. Um, But it it talks about morality too. The individual nature of the West informs how we talk about morality and meaning. So for example, if I were to do something, if I were to break a socially cultural norm or a moray or a rule, or I was to do something violative of your of our friendship, for example. Now in the West, because we're individualistic, I would walk away from that encounter and there'd be this gnawing feeling in my conscience like, I need to do something about that. That's not right. I should fix this. And I don't need anybody else to tell me that I should fix it because there's a sense of internal individualistic morality that requires me to go and try to make amends. So if I do something wrong, I can do something good to fix it. I go from guilty to innocent by doing something to make up for it. So there is a sense in which my identity is not impacted, it's just my actions. that have. Because I'm individualistic, I still maintain my individual identity as a Westerner because I'm an individual, and we, we strive to emphasize individuality. So if I do something wrong, it doesn't change who I am, it just changes what I did. And so I can do something good to fix it because of individuality, and Western innocence, guilt culture. So we're called an innocence and guilt culture because of our emphasis on individual morality. The East is different. The East is what's called an honor and shame culture. So whereas Westerners are heavily individualistic, Easterners do have a sense of individuality, but it's always under the umbrella of the community. So I have the freedom in the East to say what I want, to believe what I want, to do what I want, but those legal freedoms are always subservient to the cultural restriction of making sure that what I believe and what I say and what I do doesn't bring shame to anyone else. Because we have a sense of family and community that is part of our identity. So if I were to believe something, does it bring honor? To my family, Does it bring honor to the community if I do something? Does it bring honor or shame to my community as well? And so everything is considered in terms of how it affects other people, and that's wonderful because we consider the well-being of other people, but that also has a shadow side to it. You see, if you're constantly worried about whether or not you're going to bring shame to somebody else, what if you happen to discover the truth of a matter, and that truth of the matter happens to be the thing that's perceived to be shameful, In that culture If you're worried about shame And you're obsessed with honor You won't follow the truth Because the truth might bring public shame That's why so many people From different religious systems Whether Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or whatever it is Will see the truth of the gospel And they'll intellectually assent that yes this is true But they won't embrace it as true Because they know it will bring with it shame See believing isn't simply A right you have It's an obligation you have to the collective, and so if I do something wrong, like believe the wrong thing or do the wrong thing in an honor and shame paradigm, <clears throat> that affects my identity. In the West, it affects my actions. In the East, it affects your identity. One person, Juliet November, who studies this stuff, she put it this way, she said, in the East, if you do something wrong, you become someone bad which means that the only way to fix it is not to do something good, it's to become someone good. You need an identity shift, a complete paradigm shift in who you are. That's where Jesus comes in, the whole idea of the new creation. You are made new in Christ. This is the cultures, differences, West and East. Individualistic in the West, guilt and innocence in the West, communal honor and shame in the East. But then you look at what's happening now in our day here in the West, and we simply have a technological version of an honor and shame culture. That's what the cancel culture is, is that if you say something in the West that happens to go against what the community thinks brings honor, they will shame you into silence. It is the West that is becoming more and more like an honor and shame culture that the East has been dealing with for thousands of years. Perhaps we ought to take... uh, our cues and listen to jesus who is the most influential figure in all of history who lived and did his ministry in an honor shame culture thousands of years ago we're novices at this and we're getting it wrong perhaps we should listen to the master because he knows what he's talking about give you an example public examples of how this has happened You might know the name J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling is the uh, author of the Harry Potter series of books, the wildly popular Harry Potter series of books, millions of copies sold of each one of these books all over the place, and there are, of course, numerous movies that were made based on these books, Um, and she has amassed quite a financial and influential empire around the world. Well, she happens to be very sort of left of center in terms of a lot of her views on sexuality and politics and these kind of things, but J.K. Rowling actually believes that there are such things as men and women and it's not a fluid matter. She believes that the sexes are real. And part of the reason she believes that is because she is an advocate uh, for ending the abuse of women. She has suffered uh, mental abuse. She claims to have suffered, I think, at least mental abuse, if not physical abuse, um, uh, because she's a woman. And she wants other women to be free of this abuse, but she recognizes that if you actually remove the category of women, then women can't tell their stories because a lot of things will go under the rug or not be considered this very, very distinct category of women being abused because they're women. So she happens to believe that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. She says says this publicly, and they lost it over this. People who were her allies seconds before the tweet went out suddenly became her staunchest enemies. She was receiving death threats from people because of what she said. In other words, she agrees with them in every other way except this one way. And we can't have that, so we cancel it. We call for the boycotting of her books. We call for her to be deplatformed when she speaks. We call for people to stop following her on social media. And it's a mess in an effort to silence somebody. Very public but can also be very, very private as well. Very, very private. Many many of you may even know the sting of this kind of a thing where you've expressed your view only to lose friends or possibly even family over it. And a shame proceeds from this, is that you no longer have said something wrong, you have become someone bad. And it marks your entire identity. Anne Darwin was married to a man named John Darwin. And Anne Darwin um, was emotionally and psychologically abused by her husband, who was a bit of a narcissist, to say the least. And um, she was involved in one of his crazy schemes. You see, he had lost his fortune and wanted to rebuild it. And so I thought of a a scheme to get his money back. And he said, Anne, what we're going to do is we're going to go out into the canoe on a boating trip. Um, and uh, we're going to claim that I got lost at sea. I went overboard and you couldn't find me. We're going to fake my death, and then we'll collect the life insurance, and then we'll go somewhere, you know, maybe in uh, Central America somewhere, and we'll live, you know, fat off the, um, off the money from that. But you got to keep it up, because they will be looking for me for quite some time, so you got to stay strong, and you got to keep up the fraud for as long as possible. And for whatever reason, she went along with it. Claimed her husband was lost at sea. They spent thousands of dollars thousands and thousands of dollars and lots and lots of man hours trying to find Ann uh, Ann Darwin's husband, John. But then they did find him because they took a snapshot of her and him together on a beach and the scam was over. It was all over, uncovered, and she went to jail and so did he. But she went to jail, she was convicted of fraud, she was convicted of many, many felonies and she was called convict, criminal fraudster, liar, all the names you can possibly think of. But because her two sons had to live with that lie, they were told their father was dead for five years. Their mother sustained the lie for five years. They would have nothing to do with her after this had all happened. It wasn't being called a convict. It wasn't being called a liar. It wasn't being called a a criminal that almost undid Anne because she considered ending her own life amidst all of this. It was the fact that her kids called her publicly a bad mother. The shame. The guilt, the legal guilt, wasn't going to do Anne in. It was the shame of being a bad mother. These are very Western stories with very Eastern contexts. Very Eastern contexts. And Jesus speaks into this so beautifully because he understands the the, the dynamics of an honor and shame culture. He understands the, 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 the dynamics, I can't get it out, of a cancel culture. I want you to think of the encounters Jesus has. When you look at the the Bible and you see the encounters Jesus has with various peoples, you find him encountering people in two ways. You find him encountering people publicly and privately. So the public questions that come to Jesus are almost never to get answers. They're almost always to gain honor. In other words, the people who question Jesus try to make Jesus look like a fool So that his prestige in the crowd, his honor, goes down. So he gets shamed in front of everybody. And if they succeed, then the person who asked the clever question, their honor goes up. Sounds like Twitter. So they encounter him. Now you'll look, and there's very few, if any, Times when Jesus is questioned in public, where the person who questions him really wants an answer as opposed to wants to trap Jesus. Think of the Sadducees, for example. So, the Sadducees are this group of people, very religious, very pious people, who don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in a physical resurrection from the dead. They don't believe in that, but they know that Jesus does. So, they come to Jesus and they ask him a question, but it's really like a lawyer like question. It's the kind of question where no matter what you answer, I win, kind of a thing. So, they say, Jesus, there's a guy who's among us, who was married, and before he had children, he passed. And when he died, uh, as is our custom, his wife married his brother, who didn't have children yet, and so they got married, so they could preserve the the bloodline. But That man died before they had children. And so she married another of the brothers. Uh, And that man died before they had children. And on it goes for seven iterations. So our question, Jesus, is this. Given that the woman was married to seven different men while she was alive here on earth, and they all died, and she ended up dying, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Trying to say, this resurrection stuff is nonsense. And Jesus' answer is amazing. worth a study all on its own. He says you don't know the scriptures. In other words, he's saying, you guys are ignorant. You're ignoramuses. But he doesn't say it that way because he just says, you know, he can bite you, but in a nice way. Are you kind of thankful for it? Um, He says, you ignoramuses, you don't know the scriptures, essentially. He says, in those days, they will neither be married nor given in marriage, but like the angels. In other words, you guys have read the words, but you don't know what they mean. And you're trying to trap me But if you just knew what the scriptures were, you'd have an answer to your question already. You don't even need to ask me. See what happened there? Like a judo master, he actually used their momentum against them, and they ended up losing honor because they were trying to gain honor, not to gain truth. And Jesus' honor went up amongst the people. Now, you know what's interesting about this answer? Is that Jesus doesn't answer in a way that says, these guys are morons, I'm the guy who knows what's going on. What he does is he offers the people who are hearing it, the crowd who's hearing it, the living hope that there is a resurrection, no matter how many holes you try to poke in it, it actually stands up, the truth will not fade because someone asks a withering question. You can have hope. Now, what's interesting about this encounter, among the many like this, is that the Bible says, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, if you understand this honor game in in, in the East where you're trying to gain honor and they're going to lose it, you say, okay, that, that makes sense. So no one dared ask him any more questions because Jesus is just too good at this. But then you read later on in the same Bible, in the same Gospels even, that someone did ask him questions. You're like, well, is that a contradiction? Does that make any sense? How is it that no one dared him ask any question, ask, ask him any questions, but very much later on, you see people asking him questions? Is that a contradiction? No. Because if you understand the Eastern context of the Bible, you'll realize no one dared ask him any more public questions. That's why they didn't dare, because it was public, and they were trying to get at him, as opposed to getting something from him. But the, the, the private questions, those were the real questions. Think of Nicodemus coming to Jesus under cover of night where he asks Jesus the question about what it means to be born again. Think of the woman at the well, where Jesus reveals to her what it means to be created in God's image, no matter what the ethnic, gender, or political strife that's going on, or even moral strife is going on. And he reveals himself to people in very private ways, in very real ways, because there's no pretense, there's no effort to try to trap Jesus. He gives you what you're looking for when your intent is right. He does this over and over again. You know, it's interesting. We pretend to offer truth to people and say we're gonna stand up for the truth, but then we backbite and we give in to the cancel culture, where Jesus would not do that. He wouldn't even cancel those who were trying to cancel him. You know, J.K. Rowling, was they tried to cancel her, and then she signs this letter. It was in Harper's Bazaar or Harper's Magazine. Um, Uh, open letter on calling people to end the cancel culture and bring freedom of speech back. And she, along with like 150 other signatories, um, of various you know, professions, writers, you know, influential people. They all signed this document that says the cancel culture will kill free speech and we can't kill free speech because if we kill free speech, even with those who disagree with us, then it won't, there's no telling what will happen and we'll live in a totalitarian state and we cannot have that. We have to tolerate those who disagree with us by letting them speak even when we don't like it, even when we find it offensive. And a bunch of people signed it and then they interviewed one woman And they asked her, why did you sign it? And she said the same reasons that J.K. Rowling signed it. But she didn't know that J.K. Rowling signed it. And when they say, oh, by the way, did you know that J.K. Rowling signed this document too? She said, oh, she signed it? Take my name off of it. Do you see how ironic that is? She's willing to cancel J.K. Rowling because she signed a document that she signed calling for the cancellation of the cancel culture. You can't make that kind of stuff up. But Jesus doesn't do that. He never cancels anybody specifically because of that. He cancels the idea of canceling them, but he will never cancel them no matter how checkered their past might be or how desperate the situation might be. He just doesn't give in to it. So Jesus is an Easterner, and he understands the honor and shame paradigm, but he also understands that there's an individual value to every human being. He speaks cross-culturally, he speaks Eastern communal, and he also speaks Western individuality, and he never violates either. And we cannot seem to get the balance right. But he does, but he does. You know, you see when you understand this honor and shame stuff, you begin to see some passages of scripture in a new light. So I didn't go through this for the second for the first service, but I will in this one I think as time allows. Matthew chapter twenty, you read this parable of the generous employer. So I won't necessarily read right from the scriptures. I'm just going to tell you what the parable is. So Jesus is talking about grace and what the kingdom of heaven is like. And there's a lot of points he's making with this parable. And Jesus did a very Eastern thing. He would give you lessons in parables. Why are parables the way Jesus actually told valuable lessons? Because in the West, we want the strict logic. Give me the argument. Give me the facts. Don't dress it up with an illustration. Just give me the arguments and the facts. You're trying to hide something if you use a parable. Jesus doesn't use parables parables to obfuscate the truth he uses parables to punctuate the truth you see if I give you an argument you can know what the truth is if I give you a parable where you can see a story going alongside you put yourself into the story so a parable doesn't tell you what the truth is a parable tells you what the truth is and what your relationship to the truth actually is how are you addressing the truth so he tells this parable of a generous employer and the parable goes like this There's this master of the vineyard and this is the proxy for God in the parable. And he has this vineyard and he needs people to work at. So he goes to hire day laborers that are out there. Now, we do this today. You'll go to the Home Depot, you go to the Lowe's, whatever it might be, and you'll see a bunch of guys in the parking lot early in the morning who are looking for work. They're looking to do some drywall installing or some rough carpentry or whatever work they might be doing, looking for a contractor to hire them for that day so they can earn an honest day's uh, wage that day, go home and support their families. It happens today, it happened back then. And so the master the vineyard needs laborers for that day and he goes and he sees a bunch of men sitting out there waiting for work and he hires some and they agree with them, they negotiate with them, and he, they, they negotiate for a denarius, one denarius for the day's labor, that's considered a fair wage, they agree and they go and they work now the other guys are standing there and they're not hired what they should do is go home try to find work some other way which they probably can't do so they would go home dejected Totally in shame because they weren't able to feed their families that day because they didn't they weren't able to provide. But the master of the vineyard comes back a second time and he finds men still sitting out there waiting for work. And he says, Why are you still sitting here? And they say, Well, no one's hired us yet. So he hires some people and they go and they work. He comes back a third time, a fourth time, and even a fifth time, until there's only one hour left in the day, to do any work. And he hires people a third, fourth, and a fifth time. And then the kicker of the story is this, is that at the end of the day, he pays all of them, but he pays the last guys he hired who only worked for an hour, he pays them first so that the first guys will see it. And they see it. They're like, wait a minute, you're paying them the same wage. He pays them all the same denarius. And the first guys are like, wait a minute, you owe us more money. You're paying them for one hour of work the same amount of money you paid us. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The first thing I did when I read this, I wasn't even a Christian yet, and someone showed this to me, and I thought to myself, does this Christian even know what this story is about? It shows how unfair God actually is. This is terrible. But then my Middle Eastern instincts kicked right in. And I saw what was really going on. I saw what was really happening. From my own Middle Easternness, I, I, I saw it in terms of the honor and shame stuff. Why did the guys wait all day? for work when there was no hope of it because they were so afraid so concerned with going home in shame and they held out hope that someone would honor them and give them the dignity of working and give them that gift that they held out hope for it and that's why the master of the vineyard pays them the same that he paid the guys who worked all day he credited their faith as if it was work because they did not want to be shamed they wanted honor and one could only think of Abraham whose faith was credited to him as righteousness the bible speaks from genesis to revelation in a consistent way it's almost like god wrote it <laughs> but there's more going on here the honor and shame jesus presents god as a god who frees you and rescues you from shame to bestow upon you honor, but he speaks Western as well. You know, in the West, we have these things that we're obsessed with in terms of um, theological conundrums and philosophical conundrums like uh, how can human beings be free if God is sovereign, if God is in control of all things and he manages all things and he knows all things then how are human beings um, free, how do we have actual free will, how can we be judged accountable for the things that we do, how can this be possible how can we be judged like these things and the Bible actually answers it in this very parable, because you notice something in the parable, in the parable the first guys who get hired they enter into negotiation with the master of the vineyard and they say, we'll take a denarii." they do that and then they get mad when they get paid the denarius they agreed to and they tell the master of the vineyard you owe us more money and what does the master of the vineyard say he says friend Have I done you no wrong? Did you not agree with me using your free will for the denarius? And can I not be generous to who I want to be generous with? Can I not be sovereign at the same time? God is sovereign and human beings have free will at the same time. One parable, two issues, honor, shame, God's sovereignty and human free will. He answers the East, he answers the West in one story. But he speaks to the heart. He speaks to the heart. John chapter 9, I have to race through this. But John chapter 9 is the story of the young man who's born blind. And you know the story. Jesus comes and he sees a young man who's born blind. And he heals the young man who was born blind by making mud and putting it on his eyes. He didn't need to make mud to heal the man. He's done it before without making mud. He makes mud so the Pharisees will see it because he's making something on the Sabbath and they're going to be upset with him, as they always are. They find every little reason to get upset with Jesus. And he wants to cause trouble. So he does it this way. Well, the young man goes, and he gets healed, and he's telling everybody about it. This Jesus guy healed me. This is what he did. This is how he healed me. Now, the Pharisees are upset about it, and they question him, and he says, Jesus healed me, and all these things. So they go to the young man's parents, because they think a scam is afoot. They think this is not true. They're like, wait a minute. Either he's not your son, or he wasn't born blind, and you're using him because he's he's been begging for money based on his blindness for so many years, you're using him as a scam. You're trying to get money out of this guy's infirmity or his fake infirmity. So they say to the the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? Now, they don't want to be shamed. So they say, yeah, we know he's our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. That's a lie. It's a blatant lie. You're telling me that this man who now sees after a lifetime of blindness and no longer has to endure the shame of begging for money, is jumping around for joy, telling everyone who will hear that Jesus healed him and he didn't tell his parents. Now we know this is a lie because um, they say to the Pharisees, go ask him, he is of age, he will tell you. Because they say, who did it? And they say, we don't know who healed him. A lie, go ask him, he is of age. Why did they say that? The Bible tells us because they feared the Jews because the Jews, the Pharisees, said that anybody who confesses Jesus to be the Christ will be put out of the synagogue. They They will be shamed publicly. They will be canceled. And they're afraid of it, so they put their son in their crosshairs instead of themselves. And they said, he is of age, ask him. Now, you don't know why they said that. One can speculate, and maybe the speculation is this. He doesn't look like he is of age. He doesn't look like he's an adult, maybe because he just turned 13, which is the age of adulthood. And he's this 13, 14-year-old boy, and they throw him to the Pharisees because they're so afraid of being canceled. And the young boy, newly sighted, this man tells him it was Jesus, and they cancel him. They put him out of the synagogue, and Jesus won't have it. He won't have it. So he goes up to the young man, and he invites him into the kingdom of heaven. And he says, I have come. Basically, he says, you know who the Christ is and all these things, and I'm the one. And the boy believes. And he says, I have come that those who were blind may now see, and those who thought they could see will be shown to be blind. In other words, he says to this young man, you have been canceled and you have been shamed, but I am giving you something they cannot give you. They took away a cheap cultural honor bestowed by men, and I'm giving you the eternal heavenly honor that can be bestowed only by God. And so the question you and I have to ask is what honor are you seeking? I know we're afraid to be shamed, I know it. What honor are we seeking? Are we seeking the acclaim of human beings, or are we seeking the acclaim of God? Now, I would tell you that this is a a phenomenon only the outsiders have, only those outside the church are going through this cancel culture, but we do it. We do it. Think about the the, the preachers, the speakers, the people who have stuck their neck out for various issues in the Christian community, and the first thing we do if we don't agree with them or if they say something or make a misstep is we judge them with a plum. I'm done with that person. We cancel them. We do it too. Brothers and sisters, let it not be so among us. Let's, let's let's give some grace. Let's bestow the honor that was given to us, to those both inside and outside the fold. I'm going to close with Ann Darwin. I'm going to close with her, her story. Ann Darwin was a convicted felon and a criminal. And she was guilty of of that crime, but the thing that almost took her life was the shame of being a bad mother. Well, she reconciled with her boys. It took a long time a lot of pain, but she reconciled with them. And her liberation, her freedom, the faith-restoring thing that happened to her was not that she's no longer guilty of the crime she committed. She, on this side of heaven, will forever be a felon She will forever be a fraudster. She will forever be a criminal on this side of heaven. But she is no longer under the shame of being a bad mother. And that's what restored her. The Bible speaks, eastern and western. Psalm 25, oh oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame, that's east, Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Just a few verses later, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. That's West, for it is great. The Bible speaks Eastern and Western. Jesus transcends centuries. He transcends cultures. He transcends your circumstances and can offer you that wonderful Joy of being free of the guilt because the cross's message is that you and I are guilty of transgressing against God's law. And Jesus says, I will be assigned the guilt for you and assign you my innocence. Justice is served because sin is punished, guilt is punished, but mercy is bestowed because you are given his innocence. But he also speaks Eastern in that he says that he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? that he would be resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father and know that what he has done is removed your shame from you. He bore your shame so that you would never have to. The gospel is Eastern. The gospel is Western. The gospel is old. And the gospel is contemporary. It is Jesus who bridges them all. The Lord is just and kind. The meek shall learn his ways. And every humble sinner find the methods of his grace. For his own goodness sake, he saves my soul from shame He pardons, though my guilt be great, through my Redeemer's name. The Redeemer I offer you is a Redeemer who transcends East, he transcends West, he transcends ancient, he transcends the cancel culture, he cancels the cancel culture. Having canceled the written code, and it's it's leading to shame, he offers you honor. May you know it, may you know him. God bless you.